0: I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Hey, Solar Warriors, welcome back. Week two of 2022, and thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got. That is your time. Wherever you are, I know that you could be spending that time doing just about anything. So while you go for that walk or commute, maybe you're on a run or washing dishes like I so often do, I just want to thank you for tuning in to Suncast. And if you're new here, I hope that after you've gotten a ton of value out of this episode, you will subscribe and come back. I just want to say thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention. Today's guest, Jason McDuff, was promoted to president of Green Penny since the recording of this episode, so I just wanted to say congrats, Jason. Way to go. Green Penny, if you're unfamiliar, is a virtual and carbon-neutral bank dedicated to financing sustainable products for homeowners and businesses, but unlike many of the virtual banks out there, Green Penny is owned and run by Iowa-based Decorah Bank and Trust Company a 100-year-old employee-owned bank with decades-long commitment to positive environmental practices. Jason and I discussed the increasingly compelling strategy of financial institutions like Decora, offering products and services to help their customers mitigate the effects of climate change. As Jason said, research and experience demonstrates that it's time for banks to offer green products and services that empower customers to take their own climate actions. You may recall we discussed in a previous conversation with our friend Ravi Mickelson of Atmos that where you bank matters. And similarly, companies like Greenpenny are offering financing for solar energy systems to power homes, businesses, nonprofits, and farms across the nation using virtual, carbon neutral, and high-tech banking platforms. If you'd like what you hear today, I hope that you'll subscribe to the show so you don't miss out on our twice-weekly content just like this. I also hope that you'll check out the nearly 450 additional founder stories and startup advice where we've interviewed and written about it at mysuncast.com or just queue it up right there in your podcast player of choice. And I'd like to say a special welcome and thank you to Yada Energy who recently became a sponsor of Suncast. You'll hear more about Yada later in the episode. Thank you, Yada, for helping make this free to the Suncast tribe. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, I know many of you listeners are curious how the banking industry in general and how the lending community specifically is helping with not just the growth that we expect through you know, Sia's proclamation of the solar plus decade, the need to basically install the amount of solar we have installed historically every year for the next 10 years to achieve the goals that we're looking for in this industry. And a lot of that's going to come from the banking side to talk about how we can think about and achieve that. We are going to speak today with Jason McDuff, president of Green Penny Bank, a national deposit taker and regional lender that has truly taken the Midwest solar finance community by storm, bringing a local presence to the energy transition with decades of experience in community banking and more than 20 years of experience in renewable energy lending. Jason, welcome to SunCast.
1: Thanks, Nico. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations on your recent promotion to president of Green Penny, a little over a year being there. Thanks. You've got a tremendous story. Uh, You know, you came through the ranks of a pretty well-known bank, we'll get into that, and had a bit of a crisis of conscience and also I'd say probably burnout if I I understand Mm -hmm. the story correctly. I'd love to hear a bit about the awakening that brought you to the climate crisis and the need for you to have personal investment in the change that you need to see in the world?
1: Well, thanks. I mean, I went on a journey of self-discovery, really. Uh, was very burnt out, as you said, at a large national bank, working on really stressful projects there, and decided to take some time off. And two of my friends and I traveled to South America, and we went to the Peruvian Amazon and hiked mm-hmm. to Machu Picchu and went to the Galapagos Islands and went to Patagonia and Argentina and Chile, and national parks that are beautiful in that area. Mm-hmm. We did an expedition trip to uh, Antarctica. And through all of that, you meet with all sorts of scientists, climatologists, glaciologists, marine biologists, and they all have sort of a similar narrative around what these areas used to look like. Obviously, you're seeing what they look like now and a lot of conversation about what they're going to look like in the future if we don't get our act together around a warming climate. and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something about climate change when I came back. And um, thankfully, I found
0: Green Penny. <laughs> well, the story of finding Green Penny is a serendipitous one. You want to tell us how you ended up in the middle of Iowa, being a Bay Area guy?
1: Yeah, I grew up in the Bay Area, lived in California my entire life, and uh, came back to the Midwest where my family's been for generations. And was at a wedding. The person who runs our Green Penny banker team talked to me about Green Penny and asked if I was uh, looking for a job. And I literally had just started. I had talked with a former executive coach and got some ideas about how to start that process and but hadn't really interviewed with anybody and came here and started talking to the leadership here. And it was very quickly felt like a like a like the right fit. And so I've been here now a year.
0: Well, as I mentioned in the lead up, and we're doing this a little bit differently, not necessarily delving into the deep backstory of, of Jason McDuff. I'm happy mm-hmm. to do that as well. But I find that it's really compelling your career trajectory and the nature of the sort of the trajectory of the banking institution that you currently work with, because it represents the the blending of what we need to see in the overall sort of talent war that we're in right now. Uh, there's both people who need to see that there's a viable opportunity in climate Finance and there are banks who desperately need to figure out how to become involved. Uh, one such bank is the bank that uh, is the is the parent company of Green Penny. Can you tell me a bit more about that bank, the community they're in, and just as a lending institution, kind of why it matters that they have formed a company called Green Penny?
1: Well, twenty years ago, the father of our current CEO, we are a family owned and employee owned uh, community bank. There are thousands of us all around the country. And twenty years ago, the the father of our current CEO asked how he could live his life carbon neutrally. And this is before there was all sorts of information available online. And he started going to libraries and talking Mm -hmm. to people. And he decided that he was going to put geothermal on his farm. He's got a wind turbine on his farm. He's got solar panels for days. He buys carbon offset tags through our local energy district that he helped found. And that extends into how the bank operates. So the bank operates carbon neutrally. We have solar panels. We are Energy Star certified buildings. We geothermally heat. We buy offset tags for employee commutes for business travel, and the bank helped finance what is something that something that's very difficult to do, which is a very significant renewable energy adoption in our community. So Decorah, Iowa, has
0: one of the highest solar adoption rates of any community in the country. Hang on, Decorah, Iowa. Yep. So I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you and John talked about this on the Local Energy Rules podcast, right? That's right. I want to make sure that folks. If you haven't listened to Local Energy Rules, a fantastic podcast by John Farrell, and he talks a lot about equity and energy, and we'll get into some of those topics here today. But I didn't know this, and I haven't listened entirely through that podcast. So tell me this statistic and how how John sort of uh, staged it for you.
1: Yeah, he said that he looked it up and that that we had, Decorah, Iowa had the second highest solar adoption rate of any community in the country per capita, because we're a small community, behind Honolulu, Hawaii. And what? if you if you come to Decora, you see it. It's very difficult to have a view of the town without seeing solar panels or a wind turbine up at our college.
0: Who are the major installers in in and around the area that are doing all this work?
1: We're very fortunate in that we have a really robust installer base. We have Perry Novak Electric. We have Decora Electric. Uh, if I start naming them, I'm going to forget them. But yeah, uh,
0: we'll do. You'll do a disservice to all your I will. Yes, customers. exactly right.
1: But we. We have a, a unique combination of relatively high utility costs. So our residential rates are 16, 17 cents a watt. We have really good installers and a very competitive installer base, which means our install rates for residential are in the 220 a watt range, $2.20 a watt, which is relatively low. The national average, I think, is $3.50. So pretty low and a pretty good net metering policy. So, so it's, it's, it's conducive to it, but it also takes financing. It takes installers. It takes folks that can help connect dots for, for people on how to do this. And we have a great local energy district, the first in the country, uh, that focuses on helping people figure out how to be more efficient in their lives and install renewable energy generation. It's a magical combination that we're trying to replicate in more communities across, across the Midwest.
0: Well, Jason, before we get into a lot of the details around kind of how the industry is evolving for finance, I I want to better understand a little bit about how you thought about career as a teenager and how you ended up in the banking industry at all. Well, it was really by
1: necessity. I was in the Bay Area. My uh, father was in a terrible car accident. My mom, who always wanted to leave small town rural America, had to move back To live with uh, my grandmother, her mom, Mm. with all of my siblings. Wow! I stayed in California because I was about ready to graduate high school, and I'd already been accepted to Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, the Mustangs, and uh, got a job at Wells Fargo as a teller and uh, stayed there for 24 years, just be kind of by accident, not really by intention.
0: Wait, 24 years from a teller? Mm -hmm. Hang on. So what we didn't talk about previously is the, basically like the the secret service role you played in at Wells Fargo. Tell me a bit and, and the listeners a, a bit a bit about actually the role you occupied before you left Wells Fargo. Because I think knowing that you were a teller, which I didn't know before, it's important to talk a little bit about your ascendance in the company.
1: Well, I had a really wonderful mentor who really imparted the importance of doing lots of different jobs, mm. particularly in large companies, because it's very easy to have a lot of specialization in a career particularly in large companies, by necessity, because of scale, you you tend to grow up in kind of one area, finance, marketing, sales, whatever, and, and you just grow in that space. She really challenged me to do lots of different jobs. So I have been in communications. I have been in marketing. I had been in project management. I had been in finance. I had been in communications. I had done a lot of different things. And so I was a generalist and mm-hmm. I am... Very often in large companies, you also have strategic initiatives that are important that cross disciplines. And so I was the guy that organized the company around those, and particularly the bank. By definition, that means you have some of the most high-profile, high-stress jobs, you know, in the company.
0: Well, that definitely helps me better understand a little more about about the the need for and the desire to take some time off and, and sort of reset. As you mentioned before, you found your way to green penny, we could say that you manifest it because you're looking for the opportunity and it matches your skill set, but also because you had some time to sort of separate your thought process and look at climate finance, think about the need and and the cross section of the problems. I think that, you know, it's interesting for us to contemplate, especially those of us who've been in the solar industry for a long time and and who don't have necessarily deep banking experience that we think about how to finance projects, not necessarily how to approach and, and attract consumers. Right, we think about the necessity of getting these assets syndicated, like rolled up. How do we actually create large, interesting products that Wall Street is going to find interesting? That'll help us lower the cost of money. And you know, companies like Solar City and Sun Edison did a great job of helping Wall Street really wrap their head around it, and so many others, uh, too many to, to name. And now I feel like Green Penny represents a new breed of finance, and there are names that folks would recognize, like Sunlight Financial and dividend and mosaic and goodleap that are their lenders in our space and then they're deposit takers we had ravi from atmos you've got aspiration which is also kind of redirecting funds into into climate initiatives broadly i would classify most of these as fintech platforms because they're not banks right so when you saw green penny which at the time was very was the struggling division uh of this local bank and remind everyone of what the name of the local bank is how did you think about where Greenpenny and this like local community banking institution fit within that overarching larger picture of us as an industry banking solar?
1: That's a great question. So Decor Bank and Trust is one of thousands of community banks in this country. And your listeners may not know that the United States is one of very few, if maybe now the only large developed nation that has a very robust and actually very popular community bank system. And so you know, in an era where big banks are continually getting bigger and smaller banks are kind of holding their own and and reducing a number pretty well each year, mm. all of them are looking for ways to grow outside of their geographic community. Yeah, and because Decorah Bank and Trust had this history of financing renewable energy, wind and solar, and success at it, the thought is, why not take our experience and our truth? to more communities across the Midwest through Greenpenny and help finance this renewable energy transition that we all need to have. So we're, we're doing probably a bit of both of what the fintechs are doing. We are deposit taking nationally. We're also redeploying those deposits into our own direct to consumer, direct to commercial solar projects and yeah. renewable energy projects and being really involved in the industry as good community bankers
0: do. Very cool. It reminds me, actually, of uh, for those of us here in the Durham area, and I think there's some branches in other places, I'm not particularly familiar, but there's a local group here called the Self-Help Credit Union. Self, everybody kind of knows it as self, who has banked a bunch of solar projects in North Carolina, where we had a really well-known tax strategy, state tax credit, et cetera. It reminds me of that. But the problem, as I just alluded to, is that most people They don't even know these banks exist. They don't know they have access to them. There's one in San Antonio, the name escapes me, that is similarly Mm -hmm. trying to help the solar industry bank these products with basically using these local cooperative models Mm -hmm. or community bank models. Can you make the distinction, and if you did just now, and I missed it, apologize, how that's different from the Sunlight Financials or the Atmos uh, of the world? Well, they have very impressive
1: high-tech platforms and at a national scale. So, you know, they are very ingrained in solar installers and their operations. And we are too, but we are on the ground here. So Mm -hmm. we are out in the markets meeting with installers, meeting with developers, you know, meeting with legislatures, meeting with communities, meeting with the SIA chapters, being very involved locally. So we're going to meet face-to-face with folks. We're going to get to know the Mm -hmm. installer base here personally we're going to handhold customers personally, like community makers do. And we're going to be flexible because, you know, we're in, we lend in five states. Each of those states have different rules around Mm -hmm. net metering. They have different costs of of energy. They have uh, different incentives. Illinois cannot be more different than Iowa, as an example. Mm. And so we need to tailor our Products, our loans, our terms to the unique characteristics of the markets, and as a community bank, we're fortunate that we can do that. And also because we're on the ground and we're very involved, we're really familiar with how things work in these markets and can tailor our uh, offerings accordingly.
0: When you began at Green Penny, you mentioned to me that as a brand, as a as an ent- as an entity, a division, it was really struggling, mm-hmm. but anecdotally, you've gained a lot of brand awareness. I'd like to hear more about the thought process that you as a, you know, two plus decade institutional banker went through when you looked at this effectively fintech layer of an existing community bank, how you thought about positioning the brand, strengthening the sort of the core customer base, and any anecdotal evidence that it's working.
1: Yeah, well, we basically went back to our roots. You know, I, I think the idea was to put up a website, to do mm-hmm. some digital advertising, and you build it and they will come. And that's mm-hmm. not really what happened. You know, we're not a fintech. We're not a, a large national brand yet. At our hearts, we're a community bank. We deliver great service. We have this experience of financing renewable energy in a community by working face-to-face and and really struggling through how to make the deals work and so we just went back to our roots and started telling that story and being more involved in markets outside of uh Decora and being a being a community banker and and that's really what's resonated with folks so you know it, there's no shortcuts it means you show up at sea conferences and you tell your story you do the booths you go out and you visit installers you knock on doors you make calls there's no shortcuts to it. It's it's a lot of hard work. But I think the key is, and for anybody who's out there trying to grow a business, authenticity matters. People, I think, in today's age, even more pro- maybe than any other time, appreciate authenticity and can smell when folks are not authentic. I think B, the idea of nailing your story, really being able to describe what you're about and who you are and what you're offering, the elevator pitch, so to speak, is really important. And going out and grabbing the mic, as I say, people can't know or or can't purchase from you or or do business with you if they don't know you're there. So you've got to go out and grab the mic and do interviews like this and 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 build awareness. And it's hard work. That's really the bottom line. There's no shortcuts to
0: it. You know, sometimes I ask the question, "What's your number one headache as an entrepreneur?" But we all kind of know the answer is sales and and uh, brand awareness and and how do you balance between the operations necessary to, to build a company that can accept like broad brand awareness and how do you build the kind of brand awareness like a double-edged sword. That's the biggest headache folks have. So I think that as I think about the idea that this, I'll say like relatively small bank in middle America uh, can become a national brand as well known as sunlight or dividend uh, on the financing side for a particularly small-ish sector of the finance world, but an, an increasingly important one. The idea of brand awareness is one that is necessary. You just talked about the sort of the guerrilla tactics, the hand-to-hand combat that's necessary day-to-day from a sales perspective. But how do you know that it's working? Are there any particular, and, and I'm wondering if you have historical context from your time in banking and also just how you think about it now in a relatively sort of startup environment inside of this established, you know, decades old bank, what metrics for brand awareness are you looking for? What metrics for success do you hold your team accountable to, and how, how do you know that it's actually coming true?
1: you know as a, as a small business, we don't have the kind of resources to do what a lot of large national brands will do, which is research and you know all sorts of you know going out and talking to people and and trying to measure brand awareness in some way. It's very practical for a small business, right? Mm-hmm. Are the phones ringing? Mm. Are we getting applications for deposit accounts and residential loans? Do we have a pipeline of commercial loans that we're constantly working? Mm -hmm. And how big is that pipeline? And so, you know, thankfully for us, if I compare where we are now to a year ago, when we relaunched the brand at a SIA event in Wisconsin, the phones are ringing and mm. we do have a big pipeline and we get residential solar applications multiple times a day yeah you know one of the things that we can do that's different than some of these larger players too is we handhold people through these processes this is mm. this is new financing most people have never purchased a solar investment before they're doing this for the first time that's different than buying a car buying a house or any other sort of typical financing purchase where either if you've not done it, your family member has done it, your friend has done it, you can talk it through. This is brand new, and it requires explanation and kind of hand-holding. How does the federal income tax credit work, as an example? How should I think about comparing my utility payment to my financing payment? So what's the impact going to be on my budget? How do I think about the overall cost of this investment? What does it mean for the value of my home, as an example? There's a lot of moving parts, and that's just yeah. the residential side I'm describing. It's even A, probably more complex when you're talking about installing in a municipality or in a school district or a university or a hospital or a private business or a, or a farm. You know that, That's the leading indicator of awareness. Do we have activity, customer activity, that will eventually lead to deposits and loan growth?
0: hey you know it's becoming commonplace to hear that energy storage is the key to deploying renewables at scale but if you've tried to put storage on a commercial solar project ever then you realize it's easier said than done until now look i've seen many energy storage solutions for commercial buildings as a solar project developer in my 15 years in the industry but Yada Energy's storage product just scratches that developer itch of fit, function, and ease to install. Yada's PV coupled ecosystem of solar plus storage solutions integrates seamlessly right behind the solar panel. In fact, it elegantly replaces the need for a ballast as it nests right into the racking on a flat roof install. Even better, Yada's integrated storage technology can enable up to 60% more solar to be employed on commercial buildings. With commercial buildings consuming 35% of electricity, that means that Yada is finally helping business owners and solar installers alike make a serious dent in the commercial sector's massive carbon emissions. Yada Energy is poised to meet the growing demands of electrification by maximizing solar plus storage without taking up additional valuable commercial real estate for your customers. To find out how Yotta Energy can bring storage to your CNI rooftop project, visit mysuncast.com forward slash Yotta. That's Y-O-T-T-A. Yotta Energy, an elegant and revolutionary approach to solar plus storage. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me. Shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. <laughs> but that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash Suncast. I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. I think that by and large, and you've alluded to this, your peers in the community banking industry are still on the sidelines. I wonder, do you perceive that there's kind of, it's kind of a rising tide lifts all boats and we need more banks like Decora and like Greenpenny? And if so, what message would you have for those solar warriors in their own communities for how to get this kind of attachment rate that you have in middle America in the rest of, uh, in the rest of our communities?
1: The clear answer to your question is, do we need more community banks and more banks in the space? The answer is absolutely yes. We have to, in order to uh, accomplish the renewable energy transition that you sized earlier, the SIA goal of 30% of uh, the United States on solar by 2030, no doubt a ton of that is going to have to be financed and and funded by by private industry. And banks are great at providing capital for things. What banks are not great at is, uh, financing things that are relatively new. And there's a pervasive view out there that because there isn't yet a lot of loss history or because the loss history that is, there is so positive, you know, the, the best available data that we have is that there's relatively few losses in the solar lending space, as an example, and banks are loss skeptical of that. Loss
0: history is a, a portfolio that's upside down. It's right. Huge.
1: Or that the, the folks stop paying on their loan and they go mm-hmm. bad and you have to do some sort of collection And banks have to typically be right 99 plus percent of the time. And so by definition, that means they're pretty conservative. And Mm -hmm. our message to local banks everywhere, and we tell local banks this, we often try to teach banks about this space in an effort to get loan participations for larger commercial projects that are above our lending limit. So we're in this talking to banks all the time about why this makes sense. The main message is this is betting on the power of the sun, you know, our ultimate source of repayment is that solar system that is installed generating power. That's what's going to fund our, our, our loan, right? Our monthly payment for our loan. Uh, that solar system is generating power regardless of any sort of economic cycle, right? We finance ag all the time, and ag is notorious for going up and down and having booms and busts. We finance all sorts of enterprises that do that. Right. This power of the sun, this that solar system is going to be generating revenue, even in the middle of a pandemic, right? You, you. It, so the, the, I mean, the worst possible sort of crisis you can imagine. That system's still generating your source of repayment, yeah. and as long as it's installed well and and you don't have problems with it functioning, which you got to make sure. That's a big risk, and you got to really know the developers and make sure they're reputable and they're installing it right. That's uh, we think a pretty good safe bet. So we're. And that's sort of the, the ultimate principle, and then from there, there's lots of details around how to structure and contract and all that. But ultimately, that's the that's the premise. You're betting on the power of the sun.
0: Is there anything materially uh, important around like the business model that like issues around? I'll say solar, but broadly like efficiency financing, or or you know, uh, even at at a kind of commercial scale. Like, are there any structural? hurdles that you had to overcome to ensure against that potential loss. And I'm thinking like, as you think about sort of your position in the marketplace, is there anything particularly different about your business than say a good leap where you have to think differently or can act differently with regard to consumer like FICO scores and things like that? But for me, it's like consumer risk, installer risk, product risk. How do you think about de-risking the product itself as a banking institution?
1: It's a really, really great question. I mean, you want strong borrowers, so you look at the classic things that all banks do uh, and fintechs do. So you're looking at credit scores and debt to income ratios and all of that. Mm-hmm. Because we're on the ground, we're getting to know our installers, and when they're referring their customers to us, you know, our our focus for them is don't don't worry about the finance part of it. You focus on doing what you do well, which is which is sizing, designing, and installing the solar systems. Let us take care of explaining how the financing works to your customer so you don't have to. And now that's not for everybody. There are a lot of installers who would prefer to have more control over mm-hmm. that financing experience. But I think a benefit of a, being a community bank is you're going to get to know us. The installers are going to call. They're going to deal with the same person from the time they apply to the mm-hmm. time they close that loan. And so we're going to walk them through, we're going to, we're going to learn a lot about that project along the way. And just that knowledge and kind of intimate proximity to the project de-risks it for us,
0: right? It sounds like you may have like a customer service team internally as well. And I'm curious what elements of, because you want to broaden and have a national footprint, what elements of that sort of hometown, local feel approach are scalable for you and what elements are not?
1: Well, it's people. And so we're constantly hiring and, and adding people. And you want to make sure as you're doing that, because your our brand promise is you're going to get great service, great personal service here. You're going to get to know us. We need to replicate that with people. And that's very difficult to do. You know, it's relatively easier if you have a, just a digital platform and all things are done through a website, but mm. that's not really true to who we are, and we didn't find success with that. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have to scale through people, and we have to scale through the right people. So we're very disciplined about who we hire and whether or not their values and service skills are aligned with what we're trying to deliver. Uh, I've had jobs open for months before we've filled them because we just are really picky about that. And I suspect for a lot of your small business listeners out there, they are d- grappling with the same problem. When you ask the question, what's the number one headache that you have as an entrepreneur? I would say it's yeah. hiring right now. Actually, oh, yeah. it's, it's just really difficult finding talent.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that you and I talked a little bit about off, offline. And I want to really touch a bit, you know, I feel like I've been in the conversation, not just with my clients, but broadly in the industry. We have this, and not just our industry everywhere, but have this war on talent mm. and talent. We are trying to attract talent from banking, from oil and gas, from uh, high tech, where by and large, they enjoy product categories that have high margins. And we are operating in a sector where we have relatively compressed margins comparatively, which means there's not a lot of cash left over to afford, you know, quarter million dollar uh, analyst roles. My question to you is having come from the banking sector where do people do get paid paid well having come from California and Silicon Valley where people get paid well how do we attract talent how do we actually get people involved in this sector in a meaningful way that compels them beyond their sort of perceived need for a high salary
1: It's challenging because particularly as as you mentioned there are real economic considerations one has to think about in their life, and that matters to folks. But I think the evidence suggests that it's actually meaning and purpose are two things that are probably more important than economics when you really have the courage and discipline to think about that. And the good news for us is that we are working on arguably the most difficult and compelling challenge that we've ever faced as a as a as humans which mm-hmm. is obviously how to prevent uh, catastrophic warming of this planet and so yeah. i for one am very motivated every day by that and i can't remember the last time i was in a job where i had more energy as i'm leaving a day than i started mm-hmm. it i just i run out of this place uh, at night and i don't know that you can put a price on that and so we have to tell that story and we have to demonstrate for folks that I think, candidly, there's a lot of skepticism that we're going to actually solve this problem of the climate. I think there are a lot of particularly young people that just don't believe it. They just think that it's too far gone and and the political environment is too acrimonious and we're too divided and mm-hmm. we're not going to figure it out. And the such exciting news is that the technologies exist. They're getting even better once you're in this industry, like we are, you learn that, and a lot of people don't know that, and so we got to get out there as solar warriors, as you say, and and tell that story, and you know, hopefully, that's going to create the environment where we're going to get the talent we need.
0: Well, I I also wonder, uh, and this I I have no visibility into because I'm not particularly familiar with how the banking sector works and, and pays, but if we do begin to achieve the goal of inst- installing our historical volume of solar in an annual basis for the next 10 years every year, uh, an an unprecedented growth rate that makes our previous uh, parabolic growth curve look like a a speed bump. Will that solve this margin compression issue? Will there be capacity to pay more for talent?
1: In, In the banking industry, I think for sure, because what'll happen is as these portfolios get bigger and bigger and bigger at banks, you need then the compliance regime. You need the credit analysts you need the you know all the infrastructure that you have built in other large portfolios that exist in banks yeah. today and so i think that will come and uh, some of it will transition candidly out of other uh, areas of lending that are probably going to fossil fuel mm-hmm. uh, industries today but i do think that that'll come and that's not really any different than you know other types of of lending that happens i think the one in the, in the near term, there'll be a need for more investment in folks who understand the space. And so, you know, you hope that that that's going to drive a lot of talent to the to the banking industry and 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 drive the appropriate salaries that are needed to to create it.
0: And the idea occurs to me as well, just thinking about Greenpenny's business, is that you have an opportunity, especially in middle America where wages are lower, mm-hmm. to build a service layer for other credit entities, you know, uh, like self and other, you know, community banks that want to add this, but don't know how. I think that you have an opportunity, given the general structure of your business, to be able to step in there, use the best practices and platforms that you've built to help these other banks take take the next step. Jason, I want to take a, a turn here uh, as we it, sort of turn towards the, the latter part of the interview and conversation, look at internalizing some of your lessons learned and and how they apply to our own our own work when you think about the you mentioned a mentor previously in your life who made a big impact uh, when you think about the mentors in your life what are some of the key lessons and takeaways that have been imparted upon you that you can pass along to our solar warriors
1: well that same mentor actually taught me about balanced leadership you know mm-hmm. i as i am the president of green penny and i'm the leader uh the buck stops with me and what does leadership mean and Peter Kostenbaum has a wonderful leadership diamond. He wrote a book called Leadership in the Inner Side of Greatness that's been around a long time. And he talks about picture a baseball diamond. And at second base, the top of the diamond is vision. And a leader has to have a clear vision of the future. Where are you going? What are you trying to do? Who are you? On the opposite side, at home base, you have reality. And a leader is very close to what actually is happening on the ground. And what are your real capabilities, a clear-eyed sense of what actually can you do with the resources, with the talent, with the experience that you have. So vision balanced with reality. And on the sides um, third base and first base, you have ethics doing things in the right ways. Don't skip steps, mm. you know, don't over-promise and underdeliver, which is a death nail for young brands in particular when you're trying to build awareness and build a brand promise, then you fail at those promises. It's just the margin for folks to give you second chances is very small when you're a young brand. So ethics, uh, being of service to others, doing things in the right ways, and the opposite of that is courage. And in this context, it's the courage to act with sustained initiative. You know, you're going to have fits and starts in a in a new business and a new enterprise. Things are not going to go the way you think they're going to go. Nobody has a crystal ball, unfortunately. But you have to keep going. Doesn't necessarily mean you need to keep going in the same ways. But you got to keep going because if you slow down or you lose momentum, it's very difficult to sort of restart. So vision, reality, courage, ethics, that idea of balanced leadership. Kostamom says if you can live in that balance, you'll accomplish greatness and be a great leader. And uh, I very much believe that.
0: You, over the last year, have had a chance to wear the hat of entrepreneur, essentially startup leader. What advice would you give to fellow entrepreneurs currently in the throes of startup life?
1: I think that, you know, no detail is too small as an entrepreneur. As a result of your podcast, I read Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog. Mm -hmm. And obviously, Phil Knight now has grown this amazing, huge, life-changing business called Nike. But my goodness, when it started, it was selling shoes out of the back of a station wagon. And he was a jack of all trades, you know, and, and it took years and years to get to where they had sort of sustainable footing. And that resonates with me. I mean, I call 888-G-Penny0 just to test how are we answering the phones and what's happening. I I do that probably every day. I'm out on calls with our commercial team. I attend operations meetings and want to learn about how our systems are working. And certainly compliance is a huge focus of banking and we've got to be all over that, and making sure we're doing things in the right ways. Mm-hmm. So I certainly spend time with regulators and, and and participate in our exams. Yeah, I just think no detail is too small, particularly in the early days. As I said earlier, I very much believe that young brands are fragile. The mm-hmm. reputation of a young brand when you're emerging is is very tenuous. You know, if you come from a company that's been around for sixty years and you have clients that have done business with you for tens and 20 and 30 years, and you're very well known in the community and you make a mistake, they go, Oh, you know what? We know them. They're going to fix it. They're going to make it better. Yeah. But if you're a young brand and you're saying all these things that you're promising, and then you fail to deliver, I just think it's natural for folks to sort of go, do you really know what you're doing? Can I really trust that you're going to make this right? Should I really be doing business with you still? It's a, it's a much more a tenuous relationship in the early stages. So you've got to be all over, all over stuff.
0: Well, you mentioned hiring is a, uh, it's a big, it's a big issue. It's a big sort of hurdle for companies as they grow. What are, what is the first thing that you look for on a resume?
1: You know, I don't, the resumes are challenging to me. I've had resumes that I, I, I thought were terrible and that I never thought were going to go anywhere. And maybe they were too long or not worded properly. I don't know, I just an impression. And then I've met the person and actually had the conversation and felt differently. So, I think that interviewing and and actually going through the process of talking to folks is, is really important. I'm a very big, big believer in letting the team hire their teammates. So, you know, part of that process, I think, needs to be, what is this job actually like? Not from me, who probably talks about it more with rose-colored glasses and sure. is maybe a little bit more optimistic about what we're doing and, and, a, and a true believer. What is it actually like to be on the ground working at Green Penny day-to-day? What's great about it? What's challenging about it? I want that to be conveyed during the interview in as clear a way as possible so that when folks get here, they're not surprised. And at the same time, obviously, I want them to be inspired. But uh, I want the team to be very involved
0: in the hiring process for that reason. What are some of the key roles that you're trying to hire now? Maybe we've got someone listening who could fill the role.
1: Yeah, well, we need a commercial lender uh, in the Midwest. Um, So these are folks that go out and work with developers and installers that are trying to put together larger scale, multi-million dollar, in some cases, uh, commercial and industrial projects. You know that that are complicated and have a lot of moving parts. Your listeners know that the nature of this is projects get sort of started and and ideas around them all the time, and then they fall apart, and then they come mm-hmm. back. And being able to sort of deal with the natural kind of machinations of projects kind of coming in and out um, is sometimes frustrating for folks, but yeah. that's the nature of this beast. And 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 I've never been part of an area where there's so much that can go wrong and make a project not come to fruition. Uh, So our pipeline has to be much, much, much bigger than a typical bank's pipeline because just the nature of how the project's moving in and out. So we're looking for a commercial lender that can deal with all of that, but is motivated also to make the economics work for everybody so the projects actually happen. And we accomplish our mission of financing a sustainable tomorrow and a renewable energy adoption. So it's, I think, a pretty exciting job, but we're looking for one right now and having a hard time finding them.
0: You mentioned A book I'd never heard before, so thank you for that, Leadership, The Inner Side of Greatness by Peter Kastenbaum, Mm -hmm. uh, and gave one of the best uh, summaries I've heard on the podcast of the sort of the core function of the book. I'd love to hear if there is perhaps another book that has really shaped or influenced Mm. your thought process or leadership style.
1: Let My People Go Surfing, uh, which Uh, I know people have talked about on your podcast before, but Yvonne Chouinard's book, The CEO of Patagonia, um, Founder of Patagonia, it it is... Another example, and, and actually maybe one that is more relevant to Greenpenny in that we, too, are a privately held company. He intentionally decided to keep Patagonia privately held. There are pros and cons to that, right? Uh, obviously, right. the funding that you can get when you become public is wonderful. But the pressure, the constant need to perform quarter after quarter after quarter after quarter to beat expectations and all that has implications for how you run a business and how you serve customers and the kind of products that you deliver, right? And I I very much, having been on both sides, believe that the benefits of, of remaining private where you can be more flexible if there's a downturn. I mean, Illinois, as an example, when they just passed their energy bill a month or so ago, for nine months before that, the solar industry seized up. And that's a large market Mm. of ours. And so what would that have meant to us if we were a public company when there's just so much that's outside of your control, particularly in this young space? Um, I think for right now, there's a lot of advantages to being private where you can kind of roll with the roll with the punches, if you will.
0: Jason, there's so many more things I'd love to dive into with you, uh, but time is not always our friend. And I'd love to wrap with a handful of questions around uh, engagement. How can folks best find you, engage with you, learn more about you and your company?
1: Well, greenpenny.com, uh, go to our website, certainly. And uh, you can read all about our, more about our history and what we're trying to do here. And there's a way to reach out to us via the website. Our chat bot is called Penny. <laughs> Very so you nice. could uh, talk to Penny if you want and she'll connect are you, are you to our Are you active on our any of the social channels? And LinkedIn.
0: Yeah, yep, okay. For sure, LinkedIn, Yep. Is there anything that as an ask you would have of the Suncast audience, something that maybe is not directly related to Green Penny or, but that is generally, you know, you've got thousands of solar warriors listening in right now.
1: I just love what you're doing with this podcast, Nico. I have to tell you, I'm a listener and, you know, we need belief right now, Mm -hmm. I think in the world and particularly around climate. And you are helping people grow in their businesses and learn and become better and become better, better storytellers around how we can help people have hope mm-hmm. that we're going to actually get our act together and solve this problem and that the tools exist yeah. and you're trying to connect dots for folks that are really really important and so i just i love what you're doing and we got to keep doing more of it
0: thank you for that i appreciate it and i believe i agree that we need to and still believe that climate c- climate crisis is real and and find ways to help folks mitigate it to that end I'd love to end, as we always do, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you, Jason, see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball?
1: Well, I think we're going to solve this problem. I think we're the most capable problem solvers this planet's ever seen. We've done some amazing things when we come together and uh, work together. And despite of our differences, realize that we're much more alike than we are uh, different. We have a lot more in common. And we're going to figure this out. And I don't think a lot of people believe that right now. I I, I think the studies show, particularly young folks, are are really skeptical.
0: Right.
1: I just think we're gonna I think we're gonna figure it out.
0: Jason McDuff is the president of Green Penny, a financial division funding solar throughout the Midwest and allowing folks to invest in solar across the United States through deposits. And uh, it has been a fantastic journey and conversation with you to learn all about how this company is thriving and what it can uh, say for those of us in other communities. who wanna see community banking become a reality for our sector. Thank you, Jason.
1: Thank you, Nico. Thanks so much.
0: All right, Solar Warriors. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation and you are well equipped with one more tool in your war chest to fight climate change. There are so many new and interesting approaches to consumer lending. And I am encouraged by companies like Greenpenny are giving their customers fossil free carbon neutral options for how their deposits are reinvested into our future thank you jason mcduff and team for all that you do over at green penny and thank you to Decora Bank for your centuries-long dedication to consumers and our environment thank you solar warrior for listening all the way through this episode i hope that you'll go check out green penny and if you do be sure to let me know what you think and what you do If you're eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and so much more over on the show notes at mysuncast.com. Since I know you're already going to be hopping online to take that action, I'd ask if you wouldn't mind, share this episode with someone that you find on LinkedIn might be able to benefit from it. It's always a real treat when I get to see that others share the episodes and Jason certainly will appreciate as well learning how this episode resonated with you. So who do you think needs to hear this story today? Don't miss out next week as I'll be replaying right here the live interview that I'm doing today at Intersolar North America in Long Beach with my friend Andrew Birch, the godfather of online solar sales. Many of you know him from Sungevity, now owns a company called Open Solar. And on next Thursday, I get the honor of bringing on longtime friend and current president of REC Americas, Carrie Hayes, where we learn about the giant acquisition of Reliance in late 2021. Thanks once again to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. Of course, you can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also where you can learn how to partner with Suncast to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions just like yourself twice a week. Till then, remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.